This is a Rubik's Cube. And imagine if I stood here and claimed to you all this afternoon that I could complete this in under 10 seconds. What's your initial response? Let's see it. Let's see, exactly, precisely, prove it. That's exactly right. Because it's very easy for me to say that I can do it. I could probably draw your attention to the fact that it's well-worn, how many times a day I practice. But with such a big claim, it's obvious that I need to prove it to you for you to believe me. Or to use the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. So, anyone got a timer? Only joking. I can't actually do it in under 10 seconds. I really, really wish I could, but I can't. And if I really had made that claim, I would have failed to follow through. Now, I realise a Rubik's Cube is a very uh, trivial example. Um, but what's sad is that there are times in life when people make big claims to us. Claims or promises that actually really affect us. That tap into our felt needs that we believe in, but they fail to follow through. Take politicians, for example. In this anxious, anxious time for many, we've heard claims of tax cuts and extra help to pay for our energy bills. But we're sceptical, as we've seen politicians in the past failing to keep their promises. Or imagine you found your dream home on right move. You've got the deposit and everything else except the mortgage. To your delight, the mortgage advisor is really positive about your situation. Enough to say, put an offering on the house, don't worry, I'll sort out the mortgage. Excitingly, your offer gets accepted and you start getting ready to move. But at the last moment, you get a call from that advisor and he says... I'm really sorry. I know I said it should be straightforward, but it actually hasn't. And with the interest rates going up, I'm not able to get you a mortgage. But he seems so confident, and yet he failed to meet your massive need, and you're left devastated. Or even more seriously, perhaps you, f uh, you find out you've got cancer, you find a reputable consultant and she reassures you that she's seen your situation many times. She says, you'll be okay. But then a few months later, she tells you she missed something on the scan and it's too late to treat it. Yes, she had a good reputation, but she failed to meet your massive need and you're left devastated. It's no wonder that these kind of claims or promises hurt us when they prove to be empty. It can make us cautious or sceptical, particularly when it's related to an issue that we really care deeply about. It leaves us wanting to distance ourselves to avoid us from being hurt again. Yes, someone could have a good reputation, but when they make big claims, the proof is in the pudding. Since the start of our series in Matthew, We've seen Jesus travelling around, healing the sick, casting out demons, calming a raging storm. And as the news spreads like wildfire, his reputation grows with it, and people are seeking him out, many in the hope that he can meet their greatest needs. So I've got two points this afternoon. The first point, our greatest need. Let's jump into the passage, look down with me at verse 1. 
Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. To many of us, this might sound familiar, as both Luke and Mark uh, include this in their gospel accounts. We find uh, in those accounts that Jesus is preaching in a crowded house, and some local men hear that Jesus is in town. One of their friends is paralysed, so they decide to carry him in the hope that Jesus can heal him. But, seeing the crowd, they realise that they can't reach him in the conventional way. So what do they do? Bizarrely, they dig a hole in the roof and lower their friend down in front of Jesus. But why go through all that trouble? Why didn't they just wait and do the British thing and wait till everyone's disappeared and then go to Jesus? Perhaps you know of someone who suffers from paralysis or some other life-crippling incurable illness like terminal cancer or dementia. You feel that frustration of wishing you could meet their needs and heal them, but you can't. Eight years ago, my father-in-law was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And over that time, we've seen it affect him more and more and more. His movement is slowing. His thoughts aren't as sharp. It's really hard to watch this disease turn someone you love from being so capable to slowly someone who isn't. I wish I had the power to heal him, but I don't. It's no surprise then that when these men heard that Jesus was in town, they went to every length to get their friend in front of Jesus because they knew that only Jesus had the power to meet their friend's great need. And after finally getting their friend in front of Jesus, Jesus looks up at the men and then down at the paralysed man. And what does he do next? Look down at verse 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. What did Jesus just say? Your sins are forgiven. That, that makes no sense. Isn't it obvious that this man needs healing? If Jesus can meet this man's need and end his suffering, why doesn't he just heal him? And what must this man and his friends be feeling? Confused? Embarrassed, disappointed, devastated. What is Jesus doing? Before we answer that question, I think it's important just to take a moment and stress what he's not doing. Jesus is not setting out to embarrass this man or even make light of his suffering. With infinite compassion, he would have understood his suffering, the pain he would have experienced the way society would have uh, sidelined him. I'm aware of us, uh, that some of us in town church have faced real suffering, either in the past or even right now. Things like difficulty in friendships or family, or physical suffering such as cancer, anxiety, fertility issues, or PTSD. At times, this can lead to anger towards God and questioning what he's doing. Perhaps it leaves you feeling misunderstood. 
But Jesus knows your pain. For he himself would soon endure unimaginable suffering. Therefore, it's really important to note that Jesus doesn't make light of suffering. He's not making light of this man's suffering. See how he addresses him with such affection by saying, Take heart, son. Take heart, son. So if Jesus isn't making light of suffering, then what is he doing? Yes, Jesus has the power to end this man's suffering. But he takes this moment to show the crowd, to show us today, that there is something more significant than even this man's suffering. That there is something even more significant than even our suffering. In addition, whether you're experiencing suffering or not, we all have things that we long for. I wonder how you'd finish the following sentence. I'd be happy if I just had... What is that for you? What is that heartfelt need that is so great that if you had it, you think it would bring you lasting happiness? Whatever it is, Jesus is showing us here that our greatest need is far more significant. Jesus is showing us that our greatest need is for our sin to be forgiven. But why is that our greatest need? It doesn't take much for us to admit that uh, that we do things that aren't right. The Bible makes it clear that no one is perfect and few of us would object to that. But the Bible also makes it clear that our moral situation is far worse than we think. You see, we were created by a loving and holy uh, God designed to be in relationship with him. But sin entered the world and as mankind turned its back on God. um, Sorry, but sin entered the world as mankind turned its back on God. Satan claimed that it would lead to freedom, but it led to death. So, by nature, rather than worshipping God who created us, we worship created things instead and seek to meet our own selfish needs. Sin is naturally in us. You don't have to teach it. Just look at young children for a few minutes and you'll realise that. But what position does that put us in? Our relationship with God is broken and our sin needs painful. Like Adam and Eve, we might physically be alive, for the time being at least, but we are spiritually dead. I'm sorry if this conjures up any painful memories, but I wonder if you've ever seen a dead body. My wife's uh, grandparents lived in Oxford, and a few years ago, whilst uh, my wife Esther was away, her grandpa died. As the only family member in Oxford... I was asked to go round. Having not seen a dead body before, what struck me was, uh, as I looked at his lifeless body, was just how still he was. His body was there, but he wasn't there. His life wasn't there. It was clear that there was no way that he was just going to get up. And if you think about it, even, even his body had no awareness that it was dead let alone any power to raise itself up. He was completely powerless to do anything. 
going back to this story, lying before Jesus is a crippled but otherwise living man. But the Bible makes it clear that this isn't our picture of sin. We so often treat our sin as an injury to an otherwise healthy existence. That we just need to try a little bit harder and with a little extra help uh, make us more morally acceptable. But the Bible's diagnosis is more severe. In Ephesians, we're told that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. The reality is that because of our sin, we are spiritually dead. And here, lying in front of Jesus, is a physically living man, yes, but spiritually a helpless corpse. And we are the same. We cannot deal with our own sin and save ourselves. We cannot restore our relationship with God on our own. And one day we will face judgment for our sin um, and relying on good deeds or going to church or saying the right things won't ever be enough to save us. We need someone then from the outside to come into our lives and give us life. We need someone from the outside to give us, uh, who has the power to forgive our sin. We need someone from the outside then to restore our relationship with God. If you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, this is your reality. You need to face it. Like a doctor's diagnosis, you need to face it. It's the truth. As harsh as it sounds, this is your current state. This is your greatest need. You may have tried to do good, but you need to be raised from the dead. You need your sins to be forgiven. You need your relationship with God restored all of which you are completely powerless to do. Or maybe you are a Christian and you praise God that God has made you spiritually alive. But perhaps at times you feel pretty lifeless and you feel like you're not really making much progress in the Christian life. You walk around giving the impression you're okay, but under the surface you just feel inadequate or close to giving up. For all of us, there is only one place, or should I say one person, to turn to. So our second point, Jesus, our great saviour. Let's look back at verse 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. These Jewish leaders had heard of Jesus' reputation and had come to see for themselves if there was any proof in the pudding. But when Jesus says to this man, your sins are forgiven, they are outraged. Why? Because Jesus is making the massive claim that he alone can forgive sin, which he, they knew only God could do. C.S. Lewis once said, then comes the real shock among the Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he's always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was, quite simply, the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. Just imagine a man standing before you claiming to be God, 
If this wasn't true, then you can't just call him a good teacher. He'd either be a raving lunatic or utterly evil. But what happens next? Let's look down at verse 4. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Jesus knows that his claims have not yet been proven to these teachers. So he exposes their thoughts and asks them the rhetorical question. And what is the answer, looking down? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Well, obviously it's to say that your sins are forgiven. Like anyone could say that. I could say that. You could say that. It's just as easy for, you know, for me to say I can do this Rubik's Cube in less than 10 seconds. It's easy to say. But could we look into the eyes of this paralytic man and say, get up and walk? And he does so. No. And so here comes the really crucial part. Here's the reason Jesus is doing all this. Let's look down at verse 6. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus makes it very, very clear. The purpose of his mission on earth isn't to heal us physically, but to meet our greatest need, to forgive our sins. You see, our offence is against him, but because we're spiritually dead, we can't do anything about it. We can't save ourselves. We need a human representative, someone from the outside who is able to do something about it. And if Jesus really is who he claims to be, God in human form, then he alone can save us. Do you feel something of the weight of your great need for forgiveness? Do you feel the hope that Jesus' claim to forgive might actually be true? But like we've talked about several times already, the proof is in the pudding. So how is Jesus going to back up his claim? He looks the paralysed man in the eye, And says, verse 6, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. Imagine being in the crowd. You've just heard Jesus claim to be God and then he heals this man. You watch him stand up, roll up his mat uh, and walk past you unaided on his way home. The proof really is in the pudding. You've just seen Jesus use his power to heal, to prove he has the power to forgive your sin, to raise you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Yes, this man physically stands up in verse 7, but much more importantly, he spiritually stood up in verse 2 when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Our greatest need can be dealt with. But it begs the question, How? How does he deal with our greatest need? If sin incurs a cost that must be paid, does God just let it slide? Of course not. Because no good judge would say, don't worry, we all make mistakes, it doesn't matter, off you go. Of course not. Instead, Jesus Jesus lived the perfect life that we should have lived, tongue twister, and he died the death that we deserved to die. 
Jesus paid the price for our sin by dying on the cross in our place. His lifeless body was then placed in a borrowed tomb. But his body didn't stay dead, like my wife's grandpa. No, three days later, he rose from the grave. But for what purpose? So that he might defeat Satan, sin and death. That we might know complete forgiveness for all the wrong in our lives and be free from guilt and shame. So that we might experience the power of his love flowing into our spiritual corpses and making us alive. So that we might be united to Jesus and enjoy walking with him until he calls us home to spend eternity with him in glory. Free from suffering. Free from death. Life with Jesus. Although people can hurt us by making big claims but failing to follow through, what relief uh, we can know that Jesus can actually be trusted. What relief that Jesus really can deal with our greatest need. Let's see what the response is in verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. They've seen Jesus prove who he claims to be, and they respond in awe and praise to God. But what's your response to Jesus? If you're not a Christian, I implore you to come to Jesus today because he wants to deal with your greatest need. He wants you to know that he alone has the power to bring you out of the grave of sin and into life with him. You can trust him as he's proved his claim by dying and rising again. The proof is in the pudding. So, like this paralytic, come humbly to Jesus, admit your weaknesses and powerlessness to save yourself, and rely on Jesus alone to save you. Don't wait. Jesus is ready to look you in the eye and say, take heart, son. Take heart, daughter. Your sins are forgiven. For the rest of us, well, our reality is that we have been made spiritually alive. And so, like the crowd, it's right for our response is to praise God. Hallelujah. It's by grace that we are saved. It's a gift from God. So feel the joy of knowing that Jesus has dealt with your greatest need. But perhaps at times you feel pretty joyless. Almost lifeless. Making little little progress in the Christian life. If I'm honest... I feel that. And when I do, often my way of coping is just to put on a mask and give the impression of godliness and confidence. But inside, I I feel insecure, which means I then am unwilling to admit my weaknesses. It means I'm quick to point out the weaknesses of others in an attempt to make myself feel more secure. But what's happening in my heart is that I'm relying on my own efforts to meet my greatest need. That need for forgiveness and approval that only Jesus can give me. Can you relate to this? Instead, we are to rely on what Jesus gives us. We have complete forgiveness. We have been given that verdict of complete approval. 
So how does this play out? Well, one way is that it means we are free to admit our weaknesses without fear. Because our ultimate approval doesn't come from man, but from God. This is why, as followers of Jesus, we are called to walk in the light, rather than hide our sin in the darkness. But walking in the light isn't mainly about avoiding sin, but being honest and acknowledging it. We might be quick to say that generally we're sinners, but slow to open up about how we are sinners. But God can use our honesty to help us feel his forgiveness, to rely less on self and more on Jesus. And when you stop and think about it, we believe that uh, Jesus has met our need for forgiveness and approval at the point of conversion, yes. But why are we so quick to leave that at the door and walk straight back into darkness? It just makes no sense at all. I think one reason is because as Christians, we're pretty good at knowing that Jesus forgave our sins in the past and in the future will enjoy being with him in glory. But we're actually pretty slow at seeing what his present grace looks like in our daily lives now. Do we know, do we know his forgiveness and approval as we walk by, uh, with him day by day? Because we can. And when we do, it will transform us into secure honest and joyful people it will transform our church making us a group of humble sinners relying on Jesus together taking our suffering to him taking our sin to him because he is right there with us Jesus says to us I alone can forgive you and give you life I've proved it so you don't have to rely on me And rejoice that I have met your greatest need. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son Jesus. We thank you that we can be in no doubt that he alone can deal with our greatest need. We pray that we would rely on Jesus alone for forgiveness. That we wouldn't rely on ourselves. That we wouldn't try and find ultimate approval in anyone else. Or anything else that we would find life-changing joy in him. In his name we pray and for his glory alone. Amen.